Some time ago, I heard John Claypoo tell about an experiment that was conducted at one of our Methodist universities, Duke University in North Carolina. According to this experiment, it involved two rats. The researchers put one of the rats in a container filled with water almost to the top and sealed it completely. Oh, there was still plenty of air for the rat to breathe, but they made it clear even to a rat that there wasn't any way for him to get out of that container even if he somehow managed to get to the top of it. That rat struggled for four and a half minutes, gave up and drowned. They took another rat and put it into a container identical to the first, filled it to the same level. They made one change. They made an opening at the top, thereby letting the rat know that if somehow he could survive and ever get to the top, he could get out. There was a way. That rat swam and swam and swam, and 36 hours later, they lifted him out of the container, still swimming. The one with no hope drowned in four and a half minutes. The one with hope continued to struggle and to swim until mercifully, they ended the experiment. When there is no opening seen in our future, when there is no hope, all that is creative, all of the drive, all of the energy within us dies. Our understanding of our future has a great deal to say about the energy level of our lives. When the psalmist looked at his future, he said, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. How do you feel about your future? Have you, through a series of hard knocks, joined the ranks of the cynics? Are you like that man to whom someone had said, cheer up, it could get worse? And he responded, sure enough, I did cheer up and it did get worse. <laughs> Are you like that? Are you like that man I met one day in July who was terminally depressed? It was that day, you recall it, we can't explain it in Texas, not in July. The weather people try, but they can't quite do it. For some unknown atmospheric change or condition, a, a cool front moved in in July. And we waked up one uh, July morning, not with frost to be sure, but it was cool, it was nice. I mean, the humidity was low, the temperature was low, and it stayed uh, just pleasant all day long. Many of us just exulted in a nice, pleasant day in July. I ran into this man, and I said, isn't the weather wonderful? 
And he snapped at me, it won't last. <laughs> and of course, it won't last. It was hot the next day. But some people cannot enjoy anything because of their cynicism and having been plunged into deep despair. Maybe you've reached an age and a point in your life when you don't feel that you have any future left. Maybe you're like the exiles who sat by the river in Babylon with their tongue stuck to the roofs of their mouths. They could no longer sing the songs of Zion. And Jeremiah the prophet wrote to them saying, the good Lord is, is, has a plan for you, but before you can do that plan, fulfill it, he's going to have to give you a hope and he's going to have to give you a future. Because if you don't have a hope and you don't have a future, you aren't any good to anybody. Maybe you remember that old song, when hope was gone, I carried on. And now you've lived long enough to know that's a lie. When hope is gone, you don't carry on. When hope is gone, you stop swimming. You give up and you die. When hope is gone, you don't carry, you don't carry hope. Hope carries you. Maybe we've come to that realization. Or maybe some are like the widow of Zarephath, whom Elijah visited. You remember when Elijah got there, he found the poor woman out picking up sticks. Ask her, what are you doing? I, I came to get some food from you. The Lord said you were going to take care of me. And she said, get food for me. He said, man, I'm, I'm picking up sticks. I'm going to build a little fire. I just have a tad of, uh, of meal left and a little bit of oil. I'm going to make one last cake and my son and I are going to eat it. And then we're going to die. Maybe you feel like that, that you're picking up the sticks to bake the last piece of cake, and when you eat that cake, you're going to die. Future doesn't have any promise for you. You stand in awe of people who have a resilience. Say, you know that, that everyone gets the hard knocks. You understand that by now, that everyone carries a heavy load and everyone experiences difficulties in life. And you stand in awe at the resiliency of some people who, in spite of all their difficulties, live on tiptoe, have an air of expectancy about their living, and they're eager to reach out and embrace life. Like the Apostle Paul. Nobody ever had it any tougher than he. And yet the apostle could say, we are always of good courage. And not just when things are going right, he said, we are always of good courage. Why? Because he said, when we're afflicted, uh, we aren't uh, crushed. And when we're perplexed, we aren't driven to despair. And he said, when we are persecuted, we're not forsaken for heaven's sake. And when we're struck down, so what? We are destroyed because there's God. And there's a resiliency when there's God and when there's the hope that God brings. 
And think about Jesus who, after the crowds had melted away and it became obvious that when he died, he was going to die alone. He said to those shaky disciples, be of good cheer. How could he say that? Be of good cheer. They were about to desert him. He was going to be left alone. He was going to die on the cross like a common criminal. And here he is saying, be of good cheer. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like that problem the little boy was having with Johnny. Johnny was his playmate. He spent almost every day with Johnny. This little boy was telling his mother Johnny's problem. His mother said, what is Johnny's problem? And the little boy said, you know, Johnny and I wrestle every day. She said, yeah, I see y'all tussling out in the yard. I've seen you throw Johnny down. He said, yeah, but Johnny's problem is Johnny won't stay throwed. Johnny just keeps on getting back up. This psalmist was focused on God. Pure and simple, that's the key to his life. He was focused on God. A sheep has more foes than probably any other animal in the wild. And, and, and the, the foes are always nearby. And the sheep could have focused on all those threatening aspects of life, but instead deliberately chose to focus on the shepherd. And if you and I learn how to live well, we will focus on the shepherd too. I think about the story of the 12 spies. Moses sent them out to spy out Canaan. For in reality, they asked Moses to let them go spy out Canaan. You remember when they came back, they had two very different stories to tell. Ten of them had one line and two of them had another. But in reality, they had seen the same things. They had not separated. They had gone everywhere together. Ten of them said that the cities were fenced to heaven. The occupants, the enemies were giants, and in comparison, they looked like grasshoppers. They said, forget it. No way. We can't take that country. The enemy is too great. Caleb and Joshua, on the other hand, said, let's go get them. God is with us. No way they can stand against us. Now, what's the difference? Ten of them saw the enemy first, and then through all of their problems, they had this vague sense that there was a God somewhere out there. Two of them saw God first, and through God... They saw all of their enemies, and that put them in a different perspective. Why do you think this uh, sign at Cana of Galilee was the first sign uh, Jesus gives us in the Gospel of John? Well, we know his, his mother kind of nudged him. He wasn't ready to work a miracle, but she insisted because the wine had run out, and she turned to the servants and said, uh, do whatever he tells you. We know that. But I think there's a reason why this is the first sign. Jesus said to the servants, see those big uh, jars? There's six of them. Fill them up to the brim. And they filled them up with uh, water. And then uh, Jesus asked the, the servants to take uh, some of that water, now become wine, and to take it to the steward of the feast. And they took it to the steward, and, and he tasted, and what he tasted caused him to run to the bridegroom. And he said, hey, man, this is, this is amazing. He said, usually at a feast of this kind, they serve the, the best wine first. 
And after they've guzzled it pretty good and their palates have gotten dull, then they run out this bad stuff and nobody by then knows the difference. But he said, in, in, in your case, you have saved the best wine till last. Jesus is saying it up front and he says it throughout his life and his resurrection and his presence with us today that the best is yet to come. The sugar is in the bottom of the cup. The best is yet to be. In Jesus Christ, it's always going to get better. I want to say that again. In Jesus Christ, it's always going to get better. The best, the best is still to come. Now, how can you say that unless it's all of God? Well, of course it's all of God. There is nothing which we can do that would, that would make things uh, turn out like this. I mean, the psalmist is talking about the goodness and the mercy of God, not anything which he has done. Think about those words, goodness and mercy. Goodness is a word we should not use loosely. Jesus said there is none good but God. And since God alone is good, when we use the concept of goodness, we're talking about perfection. And so the psalmist is saying perfection is going to follow me. And he doesn't just say follow. That would be like bringing up the rear. You can really interpret this scripture as saying the goodness and mercy of God pursue me. God is aggressively pursuing me. He pursues me with good as aggressively as he pursues the evil with judgment. God is pursuing me with goodness and with mercy. Now, if he pursued us only with goodness, with his perfection, we would be constantly brought low. And fi indeed, finally, we would be driven to despair as we compared ourselves with that perfection. But in truth, he pursues us also with mercy or loving kindness. And that loving kindness represents a, a love and kindness or a favor bestowed upon a recipient without regard for merit. It's a favor or a kindness bestowed upon the recipient without regard for merit. Now mercy, my people, is what lifts up our heads. Mercy is the reason why we can draw near to the foot of the cross and make our claim on that which Jesus Christ has done there for us. Mercy in all of its expressions is what we love most. Do you remember that old story I think first told in Life magazine about the couple that had worked so hard to get a second car? In those days, it was highly unusual, but finally they had managed to secure a brand new car for the missus. And she was going out to drive around and enjoy it. During the course of her drive, she had an accident. I mean a real fender bender, just wrinkle that beautiful car 
in several places. And to make things worse, it was completely her fault. She had just uh, left off her thinking and very negligently pulled into an intersection. The policeman came and they asked for her insurance papers and she went to that little plastic sleeve in the pocket of the car where we all try to keep our insurance papers. And as she tried to sort them out for the policeman, out came a note written by her husband against that day. The note read, Remember, dear, it's you I love. That husband expressed something of the nature of our God. Our God who wants us to remember when we've really messed it up. When we think it's irreparable, He, he wants us to remember that it's, hey, it's you I love. And He loves us and He cares about us not because we're worthy, not because we've been so lovable, but because He's invested His only Son in us. I remember those Wednesday nights when occasionally I'd get free and I'd go down to hear Roy McLean, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Atlanta. I was in seminary when Roy McLean was there. I remember an old story he told about a prominent attorney who was walking down the street one day and encountered a beggar who was asking for a quarter. You can tell that was a long time ago. <laughs> man wanted a hamburger and he just needed a quarter. And as their eyes met, the attorney uh, was startled and he looked more closely and said, Don't I know you? And the beggar said, You ought to know me. I'm your classmate. We roomed in the same dormitory. And with that realization, the lawyer was so moved, he took out his checkbook and wrote a check for $100, handed it to the man and said, you go get that cash and buy yourself some clothes and get cleaned up and get a good meal. And $100 would do that in those days. The man went down to the bank and opened the door. He got as far as the lobby and he saw all those people in their suits and he he thought of himself and how he smelled and how he looked and he thought, they'll never cash this check for me. So he turned and walked out and went back to his corner to beg. A couple of days later, he saw that same friend and the friend said, what are you doing here dressed in those rags? I gave you the money to get some clues. Did you drink up that money? Did you gamble my money away? The friend said no and he pulled the check out of his dirty shirt pocket and he said, I still have it. I just didn't believe the way I look and smell that they'd, they'd cash this check for me. And the friend said, don't you understand? They'll cash that check not because of the way you look, not because of the way you are. They'll cancel that check because my name is signed to the bottom of it. The psalmist in talking about what the shepherd does for him, says he does it for his name's sake. You see, the honor of our God is involved here. It is not because we are worthy, but he has invested a son, and in the merits of his death and his resurrection for him, we can cash that check on the future. We can have hope. 
I don't know which of the volumes uh, by Sandberg you like the best, as he wrote about Abraham Lincoln. But I found that scene in the one when the war between the states is finally over, and right afterward a crowd is collected outside the White House. It's a large, loud, unruly crowd, and they're calling for the president. They want him to come out and give a victory speech. And after a time, Lincoln gives in to their request and he comes out. But instead of calling for uh, uh, having a victory celebration, he instead makes a speech of, of gentleness and of reconciliation. And the vengeful crowd, as they see the tone and the manner in which he's going, they, they don't want any part of it. And so they shout, hang them, hang them, hang them. Rhythmically, they're calling to hang all the rebel leaders. Lee has just surrendered. And in the middle of all of that confusion, Ted, Lincoln's favorite name for Thomas, his 11-year-old son, Tad was standing beside his father. He tugged at his sleeve, and when his father bent over, Tad said to his dad, Dad, don't hang him. Hang on to him. Lincoln held up his hands. Finally, the crowd grew, grew quiet again. And Lincoln said, My son Tad has just given me the clue as to what we ought to do. Tad, my 11-year-old, has said, don't hang them, hang on to them. There is another son, a son who sits beside his father, our great high priest who is not untouched by our infirmities, but took upon himself the robe of human flesh, suffered, suffered death upon the cross to purchase our redemption. And now heaven has received him home again. And he sits at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. And although we deserve maybe a hanging, he sits there to tug at the sleeve of the Father saying, hang on to them. Hang on to them. I died for every one of them. Surely then, with a God like that, we can know goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Amen. O oh Lord our God, when we consider your love as we have experienced it in the Good Shepherd Jesus Christ, our hearts run over with gratitude. But Lord, if we have not responded to that love by offering ourselves in surrendered service to your church, nudge us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. And while our hymn is sung, give us grace that we might make a full surrender to him and yield ourselves in discipleship. For Jesus' sake, amen. I invite you to come as we stand to sing our hymn of commitment.
thank you for worshiping with us today. I hope your life has that excitement that comes from knowing that you have a hope and you have a future. Let God give you a future. And if we can help here at First Church, please come to see us. God bless you. Rachel Hintner, Craig and Cynthia Cook, and Janice Dozier. <laughs> 